Are you an accredited investor looking for a new opportunity to generate passive income and build the retirement of your dreams? Then elevate your investment game with Viking Capital, where wealth meets wisdom. Whether you're a seasoned investor or just starting out, Viking Capital can help guide you towards financial freedom through passive real estate investing. With strong and transparent underwriting, Viking identifies low-risk opportunities with the goal of preserving investor capital and maximizing long-term growth potential. And their accessible and responsive investor relations team will help you understand how each investment will impact your unique financial goals. With $800 million in assets acquired, more than $230 million in equity raised, and more than 5,000 units under management, Viking Capital is your path to early retirement. To learn about Viking Capital's latest investment opportunity, which is available for you right now, visit go.vikingcapllc.com forward slash best. That's go.vikingcapllc.com forward slash best to get started today. Did you know that within a decade, women will hold $30 trillion in investable assets? Yet somehow, only 19% of women reported feeling confident in selecting investments that align with their long-term goals. Our friends at InvestHer are out to change that. InvestHerCon is the number one premier conference for women in real estate, and it's happening June 2nd through the 4th in Austin, Texas. InvestHerCon is not just another real estate conference. It's a transformational experience focused on real estate investing, business strategies, and self-care tactics all designed to help women take control of their financial futures. Gain the knowledge and skills you need to grow your portfolio and build a sustainable business, all while connecting with over 500 women who are playing at the same level. To learn more and to get your tickets, visit InvestHerCon.com today and use the code 100BESTEVER to get $100 off your ticket. That's InvestHer, H-E-R, Con.com, Promo code 100BESTEVER to get $100 off your ticket. Quick disclaimer, the views and opinions expressed in this podcast are provided for informational purposes only and should not be construed as an offer to buy or sell any securities or to make or consider any investment or course of action. For more information, go to bestevershow.com. But I did a bunch of stuff all by myself by getting partners who actually complimented me and have the same goal and vision. It's supercharged getting to my goals as well as their goals that would be it actually looking to have partners or in the back of your head thinking a good partner might be great or even a joint venture welcome to the best ever show the world's longest running daily commercial real estate podcast our hosts interview commercial real estate experts every day to get you the best advice ever with none of the fluffy stuff What's up, listeners? How you doing? Welcome to the best real estate investing advice ever show. I'm Joe Fairless. This is the world's longest running daily real estate investing podcast where we only talk about the best advice ever. We don't get into any of fluffy stuff with us today. Nathan Ganane. How you doing, Nathan? I'm doing great. Thanks for having me. Well, I'm glad to hear it and you're welcome. And a little bit about Nathan. He's a principal at Divergent Capital Partners. They just closed out their fund that has eight smaller apartment communities in it. And we will talk about that. And they are in the process of launching their latest fund. And we will talk about that as well. Current portfolio consists of 264 units. Those are apartment community units. And with that being said, Nathan, you want to give the best of your listeners a little bit more about your background and your current focus. Yeah, absolutely. So I got in real estate when I was 19. Like everyone else, bought a single family house, rented it out. 
Then realized I needed some more capital, started flipping houses. Ended up flipping a decent amount of houses and bought more rentals. And after a few years, started getting into duplexes and smaller apartment units, like six, seven unit buildings. But then about a year and a half ago, I partnered up with two guys I'm partnered with now and we launched a fund. And like you said, we bought eight apartment buildings, totaling 260 units. So anywhere from 20 unit to 60 unit buildings in that. And just between the three of us, we really complement each other's skill set. So we called it our test fund. It, it went really well. We were testing stuff out. So now we're launching fund two, like you said. And after figuring out what we liked and didn't like about fund one, we tweaked everything in the legal. And that's what we're pushing forward. So our focus now is just getting that off the ground. We're actually working on our first deal under contract on that, that will go into that fund as long as everything works out with the deal. So that's our big focus at the moment is getting that off the ground and then It'll be like a $25 million equity raise, roughly 50 to $75 million in assets that will go out and purchase on behalf of the fund. How much equity did you raise in the first fund? $5.6 million. Again, not a huge number. Again, kind of called it our test fund. By the way, between the three of us, we have around $23 million of assets. So again, we ended up buying around $18 million for this fund. That's not included in the $20 million of assets collectively between the three of us. We considered a semi-small fund, but we wanted to make sure everything worked right. We didn't want to commit to a large amount of capital and then have some verbiage that wasn't good to us or to our investors. Mm-hmm. Makes sense. And just so I'm tracking correctly, you said between the three of you, you have $25 million in assets. Is that in assets under management or you personally own between the three of you $25 yeah, million? Dollars? That's personally owned between the three of us. And, and those, wow. that's all real estate. So that's anything from single families up to actually one of my partners, he owns a couple 34 unit buildings as well. And then we have a bunch of duplexes and single family houses, different things. But this entity, which is the funds, is the first time we've ever done a fund structure. Everything previously was either bought with our own money or one-off syndications, kind of deal specific. So we wanted to give our investors access to multiple deals with one investment and give them that diversification, plus allow us to better manage their money by being able to capitalize on deals while we already have the money raised. That was basically the thesis on why we wanted to do that fund one, and it, it worked great. So then now we're actually doing what we consider a significant amount, which is a $25 million raise. So we kind of have chunks of that lined up, and then obviously we'll continue to raise through it. Lots to unpack, and we will. One initial question is, you said you found what you liked and you didn't like in the legal, and then you changed it from fund one to fund two. Yep. What did you like? What didn't you like? And what was changed? The way we set it up was actually the investor got the first 5%, like a prof. We didn't take an asset management fee prior to that. So they got 5%. And then we kind of played catch up. We get 2%, which is kind of like our asset management fee, but it's afterwards. And then we split everything. Then we did a 70 30 split. So semi traditional, but we switched the beginning. The issue was we ran into some sophisticated investors who wanted to invest, but just got stuck on that because not many people kind of structured it that way. And we did it for alignment, just so people we thought would jump on board easier, just mm-hmm. so they could see like, you're not taking any dollars, literally nothing, not an asset management fee or anything. It did it work, but in the beginning, it was a little tougher to have anyone except people that have previously invested with us join. We tweaked that. And then one more thing we tweaked in fund two, we're actually allowed to reinvest proceeds from capital transactions, capital transaction being if we sell a building or refinance a building at our sole discretion, we're allowed to reinvest that as long as it's within the time frame of our fund, which is 10 years. 
So we like that too. That way we can take advantage of great investments and boost the portfolio on behalf of our investors, as well as increase their cash flow without them needing to put any more capital into the fund. So we made it a little more like what I would consider a, a fund to be, where we're able to actually reinvest that money at our discretion. Any pushback from investors on that second part? Because from what I understand, if I'm tracking correctly, if you sell a property in the second fund, and instead of doing a return to investors based on the promote structure, you could buy another property and put it into the fund with those proceeds. Yep. So, so far, and again, it's a skewed answer because it's not fully out of legal. So the people we've talked right, about- Right, right, true. But the people we've talked that have invested in fund one, they don't have an issue. They actually like it. Most of our investors that have invested in fund one and that have expressed the interest who we think will invest in fund two, not saying they don't care about the return of capital, but they're in it for a solid investment over years. Same thing with the fund. A lot of people target three to five year business plans. With our fund, we actually upfront tell people, Expect nothing less than five years, and we're actually shooting for 10 years. We actually have options to keep properties after 10 years, and investors can stay on board. And a very big chunk of our investors, their full intention is actually, they're hoping we do that, and they'll stay on with us past 10 years. So semi-longer-term thinking, which is cool. It lets us weather any storm. If we hit some Mm -hmm. kind of economic turbulence, it gives us an advantage over someone who planned to exit within four years and, and their numbers are all kind of based on that. Mm-hmm. So it's something we actually really like. We're trying to gear people's minds towards longer term generational wealth. Let us take care of this, give you cash flow. And again, if we sell a property, we can return the capital. If something's present, we have the option to reinvest it into something. And talking about competitive advantages. Your portfolio for the first fund, let's talk about the first fund, what you bought, 20 to 60 units. Can you talk about why that size of property? A big part of that is individually between the three of us, we don't have a property bigger than 45 units previous to that fund. Mm -hmm. So it's kind of in our wheelhouse for one, but two, the point in the fund was to give diversification to investors. And we wanted to keep it small enough that we weren't committing a significant amount of time to a bad structure. So we thought $5 million bucks. we figured we'd buy 12 to $15 million of property. If we bought anything bigger, we would have been, we have two properties. Does that make sense? And yep. actually beyond that, there are some really good advantages to being in that criteria section. One of them being if someone has $100 million and buying all kinds of stuff, they tend to not buy those. They kind of stay like 75 units and over. So you're kind of like playing in a field where, the properties are too small for big guys and they're too big for a lot of small players in the local community. So you get some advantages from that standpoint too. So for anyone listening, that actually is a very good area to be in if it aligns with your goals. But part of the reason for us, like I said, we wanted to have about seven to 10 properties in the fund. A lot of it was that. Let's talk about on the management side with 20 to 60 units. Can you talk about the challenges and how you approach it? Yeah, exactly. So one of our partners, his name's Travis. He, he's actually the oldest of the three. He's a licensed attorney, but he has a... He's got the best hair of you three too. I, yeah. I love his haircut. <laughs> Top 10 yeah. haircut for 2023, I think, based on the, the picture on your website. Yep, that's him. So yeah, we always get that comment too. He has a property management company of that first fund. And same thing with fund two. As a group, the three of us decide property by property who's going to manage it. A third party 
when we consider Travis's management company, third party to an extent, because it is. So he actually manages about five of those eight properties. He has other properties around there too, obviously that he manages. But we have another property management company, a third party that manages the last three. So basically based on what property we find and what the business plan is, and obviously what area and all of that, we then go and figure out who's going to be the best to manage this. In our case, especially for Fund One, Travis's group happened to be the best at the time and for those business plans. So we're open to third-party management, which we do use in every regard. But management is a lot different. So hiring any property management company, even Travis's, who's our partner, they happen to have an expertise. Like you said, all of the properties they manage are 50 units and under, so it's kind of in their wheelhouse. The other management company, too, they happen to be a couple properties that are a little outside of where Travis manages. And this management company does manage there as well as other areas outside of ours. So we kind of added a vendor that can be trusted and then they've proved it to us since then. So now we can see their track record. They're doing really well at the three properties. So it also expands our reach because we can use them to manage those types of properties. Then we have one more property manager we have not yet used, but we intend to as long as we find a property that fits that wheelhouse as well. What is your role in the business? We each have our own role. So my role, we call me investor relations and I help on business development. One of my partners, Safe, he actually is head of acquisitions. Me and him overlap in almost every platform. So he does investor relations with me too. And investor relations meaning we raise money and we do the relations, updates, videos, all kinds of stuff on behalf of our investors so they can see what's going on. So he's in charge of nurturing broker relations and that, but As soon as deals come in, we both underwrite it, see what fits, what doesn't fit. We send out our LOIs and move forward from there. So me and him are kind of doing similar things, just we're each in charge of our own lane, basically. With the 20 to 60 units buying criteria, what is the challenge in terms of finding deals with that size of property? One of the challenges ends up being a lot of those people manage themselves. So you run into a a lot of bad financials. They're maybe they're missing half their leases. A lot of stuff runs through them. So they don't have any systems. So a lot of those properties we bought of the eight, I would say six out of the eight were not traditionally property managed. So we had to actually help on the side of here's his handwritten rent ledger. We'd have to (laughs) put it into Excel sheets, different things for our lenders. And the lenders were super helpful with that as well. But It can be a very time-consuming and big issue. And there's more unknowns, obviously, because there's less documentation on most everything. That being said, it brings a pretty good opportunity because in all that inefficiency and that type of stuff, there's a lot of value that can be found and obviously systematized and made more efficient once you own it. And you can cut a lot of costs and increase a lot of revenue. Those same people tend to under-rent their properties as well. How do you find them? We do a lot of nurturing broker relations. So every single deal we consider off market, I'm going to screw this up, but say five or six of those deals were through brokers, but off market, no one else saw them. Mm -hmm. And a couple were fully off market, direct to owners. But the broker are one of the best ways to do it. You just have to create relationships and follow up and prove that we know what we're doing. We basically underwrite everything. So anything that gets sent to us, as long as right off the bat, it's not in a spot we don't want or too big or too small. We underwrite everything, give our feedback and say, hey, we can buy it around this price. And it's great because for a broker, it's a huge value. They're able to turn around to 
off-market sellers and basically they're doing it on our behalf and they say, hey, I got someone who will buy it around here. And if it's anything in the ballpark, we get a conversation going and, and, and kind of get a deal set up. So just as far as try to add as much value as we can to brokers and, and, and anyone else who would know owners of properties like that, which there's some CPAs and other things we, we're kind of close with. We'll get back to the show with first some sponsors I'm confident you'll find value in learning more about. Are you a real estate investor looking to break into the multifamily investing space? Have you heard of MFIN Con happening in Charlotte, North Carolina, June 12th through the 14th? The Multifamily Investor Nation Convention is a place to learn from over 60 high-level apartment investors while networking with more than 700 additional investors. If that's not enough for you, A-Rod, yep, Alex Rodriguez, 12-time Major League Baseball All-Star with over $700 million of commercial real estate assets, will be live and in person speaking at the event. Also speaking is the one and only Dr. Robert Cialdini, the godfather of influence and the award-winning author. I personally love his books. So be sure to secure your tickets to this live in-person event before they're gone. Go to MFINCon.com for more details. Sponsorship opportunities are also available. Visit MFINCON.com today. Use the promo code BESTEVER to get $200 off your tickets. That's MFINCON.com. As far as adding value to brokers, Will you give some examples? Yeah. One of the biggest examples is what I said, giving pretty much unsolicited offers. And when, when a deal comes to us, we give them feedback on everything. If the deal's not right for us and we don't underwrite it, we tell them exactly why it's not right for us. What about it? We don't like anything that hits our wheels. We give them an offer. We say, here's our offer. Here's a price. So again, they're getting feedback right away. I know a lot of buyers don't do that. And you kind of become less valuable of a buyer because if a broker's sending you stuff and you're either not responding or responding two weeks later, it becomes harder and harder, in my opinion, to send you stuff. Where the way we do it, we become very valuable and we come really close with those professionals in the field who carry a lot of weight. That's their job. They're always calling owners. They're, they're making relationships with every owner. So if there's a building you like, you can mention it to a few of the brokers and one of them is bound to say, oh yeah, I know that guy. Let me call him. So anyway, that's our biggest value to brokers. And the other one is we always do what we say. We've closed every deal in all three of our individual careers, as well as the fund. I mean, that's not to say that if something's grossly misrepresented in a transaction, that we're not going to call it out and try to make something right or just back away from the deal. But as long as that's not the case, when we submit an offer, we're not doing it with the intent to retrade or anything of that nature. We run our due diligence really systematically and pretty clean. We don't bother the seller for anything we don't actually need. So the brokers never have ask for something on our behalf that's off the wall, which can drive a seller pretty crazy as well if they keep getting weird demands from the buyer. So we're a very easy buyer on top of that, and, you know, as long as we're getting what we need. And what about the direct to owners? How did you find those deals? So actually the ones for that first fund, it was the type of property that if someone went by it, you would just be like, oh, the owner must live in Hawaii <laughs> or something and it's, it's not around. They're missing something like, oh, the grass is nine inches high and not saying it didn't get cut, but maybe it got cut a week too late, multiple times, just stuff like that, where it's like super goofy. We just add it to a list. And then that list, we figure out who owners are and Again, if a broker has a relationship, sure, like, great, they can figure it out. But in some of those instances, we reach out direct, and uh, the seller was just interested in having a conversation. And some of the times, it's purely timing. One of them, we called, and the guy happened to have already tried to sell it, and the deal fell apart. 
So our timing was great. Other than that, those usually take a year, two years. One of the properties I think we reached out to probably two years ago before the fund was even a thing, one of us was just going to buy it. Mm-hmm. And obviously seller's not ready. And then while we had the fund open, the, the seller was ready, which again, we called back. It's not a one-off phone call. It's reaching out multiple times and then creating a relationship. And then eventually on one of those calls, he kind of made an inclination that he might be ready to sell. And we met with him, sat down, talked to him, tried to see what he wanted. And we were able to make something work. Those are obviously far and few between because you have to put in a lot of effort and, and show true intent and not be super pushy. You just kind of have to be there as a resource. And again, it just all comes back to adding value. So the cool thing about our partnership, all three of us really agree on just adding as much value we can everywhere. So in every aspect, that's our goal. So with brokers, we try to give them as much value as we can. And it kind of comes back at some point. As far as that phone call, once you get the information about the owner, yep. what's the first contact? Is it a phone call? Is it a letter? Is so it we've, something tried, else? we've tried a bit of everything. And again, my partner Safe is in charge of that, but I roughly know what we do. And I've been on those calls and things. We've done it every single way. So we've sent letters first. We've sent letters second. We've called first, called second. We do a huge mix of things. In that instance, they probably got a letter before we called. And when we called, I don't think they realized the letter was us, but it's more of like, hey, we own properties in your area. Um, and we're just reaching out just to get to know you. And if we can add any value, if you need any vendors, let us know. And also just, we usually backhandedly let them know that we still buy apartment buildings, but we're just not super pushy. We don't call and say, hey, you ready to sell? We'll give you X amount. We've done that before. And in different stages, but generally we just try to create a relationship. So we're always like top of mind to that guy. So in his head, he can say, if I am going to sell this two years, three years, four years, this is the number I'm going to call. Cause I've talked to them now 10 times or received these things. Um, mm-hmm. But yeah, we try not to be like pushy salespeople because then you just get hung up on. Going back to the 20 to 60 unit range. And you said value can be found in these deals because typically it's not professionally managed from your experience. You yeah. said two ways, and I know there are more, but two ways. You can cut costs and also typically they're under rented. For the cutting of the costs, can you give some specific examples of that? So one, on properties where it makes sense, we generally put like a water conservation program in, which is pretty much like swapping toilets that are from the 50s, doing all that stuff. You tend to cut that utility cost by a lot. Mom, what we call those type of mom-pop owners, I've never seen one do it. That's one way, but more than that, and the, the bigger value is we do have a bunch of properties in the area. So we have very solid vendors within the management groups we use. So like our prices, and I'm just making it up, but say to change a toilet for us, it's $70 in labor plus a hundred for, so $170. Some of these like mom and pops, they're not actually changing it themselves. Some of them are, but the ones that aren't, they're calling a one-off plumber who might charge them $400. And they're calling this carpet person who maybe their carpet installer is $1,900 on a turn where ours is $850. Our painters paint a unit for $500. Theirs might be $1,500. Just basically, we have very solidified contractors and not so much contracts in place, but pricing in place that we use everywhere. And you give them such good amount of work that those prices... They're very good, very competitive. Where one of the buildings we bought, most of the guys' line items were a lot more than what we pay for things. And then there's other ways too. 
those are the two biggest that are impactful in dollar amounts. And then there's some preventative stuff that we do that maybe they don't. But the other thing that the reason they tend to have less rent than say we get is generally that's the only building they own. Maybe they own one more. So they're not like checking comps. They're not doing any of that. They're more like stuck in the day to day where we kind of look portfolio wide and we can say, Hey, in that area, those units should be 1100 bucks. This guy's at 690 <laughs> and I'm sure they realize 690 is low, but they usually say like, Oh yeah, they should be 850. Well, even the 850 is still low, but half the reason they're low is they don't want the vacancy because then they have to deal with it. And some of these places got bought 15 years ago. So they're still cash flowing for the guy. He's happy and he's kind of keeping his own headache down. So that's the third way. That's the raising the revenue. A lot of those owners, at least that we've targeted and have dealt with, they're just like missing the boat for whatever reason on what the rental rate should be. And generally, it's more of a convenience thing. Taking a step back, what's your best real estate investing advice ever? Finding great partners it actually is huge. So before this partnership, I had I had a partnership before and it wasn't the greatest thing. But I did a bunch of stuff all by myself by getting partners who actually complimented me and have the same goal and vision. It's supercharged getting to my goals as well as their goals. That would be it. Actually looking to have partners or in the back of your head thinking a good partner might be great or even a joint venture. Same thing. We're going to do a lightning round. You ready for the best ever lightning round? Yeah, absolutely. Best ever book we've recently read. Two months ago, I read a book called What It Takes. Stephen A. Schwartzman, the Blackstone guy, the founder of that. Um, But yeah, that book was great. I talked about starting Blackstone all the way up till a year or two ago. What was the takeaway for you from it? A bunch. So you kind of got to see them sort of fly by the seat of their pants in the beginning, even though they're doing hundreds of million dollar deals to now. But basically they added a bunch of systems on how to handle deal inflow, how to quickly vet things out, how to present ideas, how to veto ideas and how to accept them and then what to purchase that process. And then the bigger thing actually is how much he values his joint ventures, his partners and his employees and making a great environment to work with and for them. That definitely hundred X his business was that where in the beginning that wasn't a huge focus. And then now after reading the book, it sounds like that's his largest focus on the second half of that company's lifetime. Best ever way you like to give back to the community. So the last couple of years, I just try to help people that are, I think are similar to where I was at a handful of years ago. Just basically when they have questions on how to get started in real estate or how to get further, I try to answer as many questions as I can, have them call me, email me, and help them with that. Something that aligns with their goals and moves their needle forward. What deal have you lost the most amount of money on? I mentioned a previous partnership. It was actually my first ever partnership. We bought a 13,000 square foot building in Detroit that was vacant. I call it a redevelopment deal and I raised $1.2 million to do it, but I had two partners. That's how we did it. So the three of us came in and we were kind of all active and it was just nothing wrong with the deal. It was just a bad partnership. So after about a year, it kind of started breaking apart and we broke up, sold the building. I lost a hundred thousand dollars and each of them lost some money too, for sure. But going back to the partnership, a bad partnership can be bad as well. So you got to be very careful with what you pick and who your partners are in the alignment. I think there was a misalignment of vision there. I was probably like 25 at the time. And I was too excited about the deal. I didn't really vet the partnership as much as I should have and ask questions that now I would. Really quick, what's one or two questions you would ask if presented in a similar situation in the future? Yeah, I would actually ask about the downside. 
What happens if the market changes? What are we going to do with this building? What happens if something weird with the financing happens and we have to switch the route where like everything was very one track. It was like, mm-hmm. oh, here's what the deal's going to be worth when it's done. Here's the financing we're going to get. There was no alternative option. So when we hit those roadblocks and speed bumps that always happen on everything ever, <laughs> there was no backup plan pre-talked about. So it was hard to get everyone to veer and agree on where we were going. There were too many cooks in the kitchen with no previous agreements on anything. And actually the legal contract too wasn't the greatest. So nowadays I'd have to make sure all that stuff is fully in line before jumping in a deal. Nathan, thank you so much for being on the show, sharing your journey with us. Congrats on closing out that first fund's equity raise and good luck with the second fund. And thanks for sharing the insights that you've applied towards your business and buying the 20 to 60 units on the first fund and some advantages and challenges that go along with that. So appreciate it. Hope you have a best ever day and talk to you again soon. You too. Thank you. Hi, Best Ever listeners, Joe Fairless here again. And one last thing before you go, would you like to receive a short weekly email with proven tips from experienced investors, free tools and resources, and a roundup of the week's most relevant news and Best Ever content? Well, if so, join the community of nearly 15,000 commercial real estate passive and active investors who receive the Best Ever newsletter. Just go to bestevercre.com forward slash access and you'll get the very next one. I hope you enjoyed this episode. And as always, thank you for listening and have a best ever day.